you know, ultimately, I don't believe it's a financial addiction. It's an emotional addiction. It's a behavioral addiction. It's a psychological addiction. But the currency is money. The number of times I've had a college student say to me, I don't gamble. I only bet on sports. In the past, you had to be in two states. You had to be in New Jersey to, to gamble in Atlantic City, or you had to be in Nevada and gamble at Las Vegas. Now, you, I think it's up to, as we speak today, it's about 33 states out of the 50, and it will get to 48 over the next probably five or six years. There's a lot of these preconceived notions and misnomers in, among American youth and emerging adults where they don't even see what they're doing as problematic or harmful. That's really concerning. I believe we make a huge difference. Um, but one thing I would stress is we can't do it on our own. You know, collaboration is, is such an important value of ours. Welcome to the Gambling Harm podcast, a podcast from Epic Risk Management, in which we'll be looking at all aspects of gambling harm, including the work done by Epic across various sectors. I'm Steve Cotton, and I'll be joined on every episode by a different guest or guests from Epic's lived experience team. And I'm delighted to be joined today by the man who started it all, the founder and CEO, Paul Buck. Plus, in person for the first time with me, Dan Trelaro, the Vice President of Prevention from the United States-based team. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having us. So on this episode, we'll be talking about a wide range of issues in and around gambling, but we'll be trying to, to look forward a little bit and have a big think about the future of gambling with a fair bit of focus on the United States and how things are changing there. But before we get into that, can you each tell us the very short version? Because I know these versions can vary from 45 minutes down, but the very short version of your experience with Gambling Harm and how you ended up at Epic Risk Management. Sure. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here and great to see you in person. Yeah, my experience with gambling-related harm started when I was young. I actually grew up around gambling. My father was a gambler. Uh, I went to the horse track when I was 12 years old. And my first experience at the racetrack betting on horses had nothing to do about the amount of money, but it was about spending time with my father. And so that connection with my dad, I really just enjoyed. And I associated gambling with family time. And as I kind of progressed through my life and I was involved playing sport and I played baseball at a fairly high level, uh, unfortunately, an injury derailed my career. Gambling was always kind of bubbling in the background. Uh, and unfortunately, as I went in through life and started working in financial services in downtown New York, gambling was there, although not, not really strong in my life. But the events of September 11th really launched it into a whole new level. And so having lost uh, 14 friends that day and then two more to suicide in a month that followed, that was so much to deal with. And I didn't know how to handle life. And I turned to gambling as an escape and to deal with that pain and that loss. And for the next eight and a half years, I gambled on something every day, whether it was sports betting, cards, whatever it was. And it was all done online. And over that time, just losing money, losing time, losing relationships, until it all culminated into being terminated from my job as a financial planner in charge of other people's money. I had embezzled over $2 million um, from multiple clients and it resulted in a prison sentence, uh, time away from family. And I, when I came out of prison, I realized I wanted to do something different with my life. Um, I received my master's in psychology and I said, I wanna understand me, I wanna understand how I work and so I can help other people. And then started working at 800 Gambler. And you know, from there, it's been just helping people and education and prevention until I was able and fortunate to join Epic and, and work you know, for Paul and, and with the Epic team, which has been phenomenal. Yeah, my story was, uh, was, was, was slightly different from Dan's in that I didn't gamble at all for the first 18 years of my life. 
Um, I played a lot of sport. Um, you know, I was very competitive, but I, I had no interest in gambling, which was a very different beast back there, uh, which was sort of horses, uh, dogs and football pools. It wasn't anything sort of 24 hour, seven days a week, uh, you know, with, with, with hundreds of markets on every sport uh, online. So it was very different. So I, I placed the first bet in 1994. I um, bet on a horse, £10 each way and a 33 to one or it won. And from that day onwards, I was on the gambling spectrum. I was, um, you know, I was, I was gambling every day for the next 17 years. That's how quickly the sort of uh, switch went from being not no gambler at all to, to, to someone who gambled every day. And, you know, for the first seven or eight years, I, I, I gambled and stayed in control of that time, money, cognition, the three things which make up a, a, a gambling addiction, if you like, if you lose control of them. Uh, but I was in control until 2001, 2002. And, and that was a decade, really, between 2001 and 2011 as a financial services uh, financial advisor and then a regional manager and then a divisional divisional manager. Um, and during that decade, I transacted £4.8 million across 93 different betting accounts. I lost £1.3 million, of which 434000 of it was, was my employer's. Um, and so there was a couple of quite big rock bottoms. And then I had a decision to make, you know, do you go out there and, and do, get a job of some sort, a different type of job? Or do you go out there and actually try and use your experience plus any sort of business acumen you've got to sort of stop this happening to other people going forward? And that was very much where Epic was born from. Uh, Epic being education, prevention, identification, control. And for the last 10 years, we've literally served that purpose of using lived experience to take the problem out of gambling by working with those areas which statistically and evidentially have got the, the biggest problems. So we've got a team now of 46, 24 of those people, including Dan, are people who have been to the real depths of, with, with gambling addiction and come out the other side and now lead a really positive, resilient life in trying to prevent it happening to other people. One thing I picked up there for, from your stories and from hearing them before as well is the amount of similarities between your journeys. I mean, the, the parallels are not insignificant, are they, between you two in particular? They absolutely are. You know, it's kind of funny. I think back when I was first interviewing with Epic and talking with Paul to hear those similarities right down to the family, financial services background, the gambling, the journey. And you, you can see an element of yourself in another person. And I think what makes Epic so great and, and the 24 lived experience facilitators we have is we all have a unique journey, but we've all ended up in the same place with a passion of helping others, with a passion of prevention and education. And looking at it from our lens of lived experience really helps us connect with that audience that we're trying to reach out to. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the 24 stories and put them side by side or listen to them side by side, they're all the same but different. You know, there is some similarities, there is, but this, but at the same time, the 24 very different stories because they're all from different backgrounds. People had different triggers of why they gambled in the first place, why it became a problem for them, um, why, how they, how they finished, you know, how they finished gambling, uh, what the rock bottom was, et cetera. So, so, you know, there are similarities. We know there are major triggers of gambling addiction, but there are also differences in everyone's stories. And it's that uniqueness, uh, I think, which makes Epic kind of special in that we, we, we've got those different perspectives. And if you look at gambling addiction as an addiction, it's different from alcohol. It's different from drugs or sex or shopping because it's illogical. You can understand why somebody will become addicted to drugs or why somebody will become addicted to alcohol or cigarettes or, or something like that because you're putting a substance one way or another into your body. So your body becomes addicted to it. It needs it to continue to function. With gambling, it is purely 
uh, psychological, it's behavioral. So that's why we very firmly believe that lived experience should play a big part in the prevention, uh, the, 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 the research and the treatment of, of gambling. And thankfully in the UK in particular, that is starting to be a network that is growing. In the US, it's still very much at its nascent stage. Yeah, and, and, and to add to that, you know, gambling has some high rates of stigma. And that's one of the challenges is that when you're talking about a process addiction, to Paul's point, you know, we're not putting it in our bloodstream. The number of times someone would say, well, why didn't you just stop? Why are you so greedy? Had nothing to do with greed or not being, it's, it's an addiction, it's a disease because the person with a gambling problem has been conditioned to know that over time they will win every so often. The problem is they don't know how much, how often, or when it will occur. And it's very difficult to abandon an, an intermittent reward schedule when you know it's right around the corner. So oftentimes gambling is often seen as a money problem where in reality, it's an emotional issue. One thing I was going to ask you guys, I mean, obviously you worked in financial services. Do you see um, symmetry between, I guess, being in charge of other people's money, sometimes taking risks with other people's money for your, for your day job, whether it's day trading or whatever, but do you see a similarity between that and gambling? And, and if so, how do those things cross over? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we know, uh, you know, Epic works statistically and evidentially with the, the the sectors which have the biggest problems. Financial services is very much one of those. And it's not, you know, uh, your customer service advisor who's opening savings accounts at the front of a branch. It's your risk takers. It's your financial advisors. It's your traders. Uh, and people like that inherently take risk all day, every day. And then they're expected to sort of leave uh, the firm that they're working for, the environment they work for, and go and, and not have any risk profile at all. And it's just, it's just, it just doesn't happen like that. And certainly in my case, you know, that, that kind of risk element of working with it day in, day out, but also the being out of your comfort zone due to the progression of what you were going through within the, within the bank that I work for were very much my triggers to go and find gambling as the, as the, as a kind of way out or the solution to things. Um, but no, for sure. I think, I think some sectors are higher risk. I think it is though quite an indiscriminate problem and that it can affect anyone you know if you only have to look on google there were six priests in the last two years who have who have, who have, who have stolen somewhere around five or six million pounds between them so it can affect anybody at any time and once it gets hold of you and has that kind of vice-like grip of your brain um you know it's a very very difficult thing to to get out of um as as the, the guys and girls at epic who who talk about the stories every day can testify yeah, and, and you know, there's always certain personality traits that attract people to certain fields of work or lines of work. You know, as an athlete, I was a, I was a risk taker. I was competitive, had a fear of failure, and those types of personality traits can lend themselves to addiction. Right? Addiction is very complex. Right? It's biopsychosocial. There's a lot of factors that go into it. But when you enter the financial services field, and you know, when I spent my time at Goldman Sachs downtown New York, I was in a fast-paced environment, risk-taking environment. You know, it was that constant adrenaline rush, the dopamine, all of the chemicals that are being released in the brain. It, it feels at times like gambling, you know, because it's this process that you go through. And then when I became a financial planner, I had the availability and accessibility to client funds. That was a recipe for disaster. That's like putting the alcoholic in charge at the liquor store. I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. So that was that was ultimately one of the hugest areas that I struggled with was that availability and accessibility. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'd back that up. Access to money is a is a big part of it. You know, ultimately, I don't believe it's a financial addiction. It's an emotional addiction. It's a behavioral addiction. It's a psychological addiction. But the currency is money. 
you know, I always say that I think I would have got, you know, certainly towards the latter end of that decade where, where, where I had a gambling addiction, um, you know, I would have been just as happy if I could have got a lorry load of six-inch nails, if six-inch nails were the, were the currency to gamble. I'd have been just as happy if I had a lorry load of washing-up liquid bottles, if you could gamble in washing-up liquid bottles. It just so happened that money is the currency to, to actually gamble, and I was a regional manager of a bank, I had access to money. Others don't have that, you know, we're from the financial services or we were from the financial services industry. Others don't have that, but it doesn't mean that they don't need to gamble. And what they do is they'll start selling drugs or they'll start breaking into houses or stealing cars or whatever it is to fund that addiction. Because once you get to that stage, it doesn't matter where the money comes from. The need to actually place that next bet is far more important than, than, than what you do to fund it. And, and it, you know, it's becoming more and more common and, and evidenced. We said we were going to talk a bit about about the future, so so we'll, we'll move on to that. With I mean, Epic started, of course, in the UK, Paul. You know, when you founded the the business, it's now working more and more in in the United States. So, looking at the two markets, the two countries where they are, what what, what are the main differences between the gambling markets, and how is the United States handling, I guess, the well publicised changes in its gambling laws? Yeah, there are, there are fundamental differences. So as you said, we were a UK company uh, formed in November 2013. Uh, we worked mainly in the UK and around Europe initially. We've done some work in Australia and, and you know, in 28 countries in, in, in total in some form or other. But, you know, if you look at where our work is no, most needed right now, it's in a country which is three and a half thousand miles wide, 320 million people, uh, 50 different states with either no or different regulation. So, you know, what could possibly go wrong? And, you know, it is growing at an inordinately fast rate. So you've got, in the past, you had to be in two states. You had to be in New Jersey to, to gamble in Atlantic City, or you had to be in Nevada and gamble at Las Vegas. Now, you, I think it's up to, as we speak today, it's about 33 states out of the 50, and it will get to 48 over the next probably five or six years. So gambling is becoming a bigger and bigger activity. Now, what we've got to remember is that, you know, 90 odd percent depending on which figure anywhere between 90 and 99 percent of people can gamble and stay in control of time money cognition it's a leisure pursuit it's an entertainment but that one percent is still or between one and ten percent is still a very significant number of people um so the prevention of harm is going to be a really really big topic as as it continues to grow in into the u.s the other thing before I pass on to the, the real expert in the US is, is really they are different in terms of the black market and the unregulated market. So in the UK, you know, most people gamble in a regulated environment. So with a regulated operator, regulated by the Gambling Commission. And, you know, there is a, a thriving black market that runs alongside it, but it's nothing like the size of the one in, in America. So in America, even though gambling wasn't legal, um, you know, a lot of people still gambled um, and he did it in, a, in, a, in an underground way in a, in a black market. And, you know, it's almost going the other way now. It's by going to a regulated gambling scene, it should actually add extra controls and, and, and everything else. But it is really important that the industry operators and six of them make up about 92% of the market over there do set the standards, do continue to raise standards and put safer or responsible gambling right at the heart of everything that they do. That's such a big question. How long do we have for this one? Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's so fascinating just working for a company like Epic who has been in the UK and has seen this. They're, they see the tidal wave. You know, Paul talks about that a lot. You know, we see the tidal wave, this massive wave coming to the US, and we're doing our part to try to help um, kind of curb the storm and the tide. 
one of the major differences that we talk about is the fact what Paul just mentioned, there's 50 different jurors, 50 different states, of which then you also have tribal jurisdictions. That's way different than, say, one national policy. And so the other point is that since PASPA was repealed in 2018, which allowed for the legalization of sports betting, to give states the right to decide if they want to, how to enforce, how to legalize. Not every state jumped on it at the same time. So you had New Jersey, who was a first mover. You already had legalized sports betting in Nevada. And you've had state after state come online to points, uh, Paul's point. They're over 30. We'll have 48 in the next five to six years. But everyone's moving at a different pace. And operators enter states at a different pace. And what we see traditionally in the U.S., is that some states don't want to be first movers. Some states want to learn from other states. So there's this really uh, ongoing process that we're living in the middle of, of what are those best practices? Uh, I was at a gaming regulators conference just last month, and and two of the folks from the uh, European uh, Commission, the gaming regulators in Europe, uh, were there, and they were presenting, and they were kind of talking about what they've seen versus what they're seeing in the U.S., and for regulators to come to a roundtable discussion to talk about those, some of the glaring issues are internet and online mobile device gambling. Every state right now that's coming online wants to have in their bills some type of internet or online mobile device because it's, it's a quick revenue generator as well. Um, it gives the availability and accessibility, something Paul and I both talked about, is can become problematic when it's in your pocket 24-7 on a mobile device to be able to gamble. Uh, the rise in the growth of in-place sports wagering in the U.S. is fascinating. Something we're seeing a tremendous number of 21 to 35-year-olds using is same-game parlays, in-place sports betting, where it's not about the outcome. It's about that, that short-term bet, that microtransaction, if you will. And now let me move on to my next bet. And that can start to lead to problematic use. You know, it's that 1% to, to 10% that we're really worried about. Because it might be only a small fraction that have true clinically diagnosable disordered gambling. But what about those that are in the middle? Along that continuum of harm, where are they sliding on that scale? What we're starting to see in the U.S. is we're starting to see people move more towards that harm side and less towards responsible use. And the other big thing that we're taking away is the use of marketing. And that is a conversation that's constantly being had from legislators to regulators to enforcement. The amount of marketing that's being advertised, there's a lack of balance in the messaging. And for someone to constantly be seeing a reinforced message of, hey, gamble, free play, terminology like that, that's a real concern, and that could be a recipe for disaster, and that's, that's why we do the work we do. You know, we work in so many high-risk sectors. We work with operators. We work to educate people about the harms, and those are a few of the harms that we're seeing. So has a lot of this been sort of driven out of, I guess, fantasy sports? Has a lot come from that? Is it, is it if they, are the same operators that would have provided that service, are they building on, I guess, that the regulation changes? So, so it's, it's fascinating when you say, because, you know, fantasy sports was in the, in the spotlight a good, you know, eight to 10 years ago. And the argument for fantasy sports is it's not technically gambling. And there was a bit of a debate about that. And I would say 25 of the 50 states said it is gambling and 20, the other 25 said, no, it's not. But again, states' rights. And... The fantasy sports operators oftentimes would then, once the sports betting was legalized, they offered the sports betting product. So there is a transition. One can argue the transition and the continuum goes back to even an earlier age when you're talking about our youth, you know, educating our kids. You know, I have three children. You know, Paul has children. A lot of us have children within Epic, but they're being exposed to gambling um, type behaviors and activities through the video games they play whether it's social casino games, whether it's game uh, video um, casino content or gambling content that are embedded within video games, they're learning that risk-reward element. They're learning the opportunity to risk something of value, to win something of value. 
It could be digital items. So it's just the whole culture of gambling. There's a lack of education in the United States for that. The, the other point I would add here is we've got some big states that have already legalized. You know, you've got Ohio and, and, and others as well. Um, and they've made, they've made quite a few mistakes as they've gone through that licensing um, procedure. You know, there's many, many states who haven't got any provision for research, educational treatment uh, for a problem gambling fund over there. Uh, and it's almost like they're, they're, they're putting their head in the sand with it, really, because they're thinking, oh, we're going to get all this extra tax income or we're going to get all this gambling income and, and stuff like that. It's actually the way we can recover from the pandemic, which is the way we can get out of financial recession or financial hardship as a state. But it's such a false economy because, you know, what, when somebody is gambling or the, the amount of people are gambling more, there will be more gambling harm. It's just sheer fact. Even if it's 1%, 2%, 3%, 10%, there will be more gambling harm the more people gamble. So to actually go headfirst into licensing gambling without having any kind of uh, problem gambling uh, provision or, or finances is, is a real false economy. And if you look at what's down the line, you know, there's actually some really big states who haven't yet licensed. You look at Texas, which is probably not that far off. That's going to be a massive state for gambling. And then along the line, probably not this year, but, but, but maybe the year or the year after, you've got California, which is whichever figures you look at. It's either the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world, not just in the state, but largest economy in the world. So there's some real big players about to come in. And this, this precedent of not having any problem gambling funding or responsible gambling funding for, for, for research, education, uh, or treatment is, is a really worrying trend and one that needs to be addressed by the U.S. or the level of harm will be way beyond anything that's ever happened anywhere else in the world. And, and to that point, you know, I had some talk with the Tennessee regulators. And Tennessee said that they were a bit slow to want to legalize gambling. Tennessee is one of the rare states in the United States that actually op operates off a surplus. They're one of the most fiscally, financially secure states in the U.S. And what they were worried about is through legalization of sports betting and expanded gambling, would that create an unintentional harm? Were they staffed? Were they properly ready for that wave of potential for problem? Law of large numbers. You know, you offer something to a large pool of people, there'll be that percentage that has, experiences harm with it. So Tennessee was a little bit slower moving to market just because operating from a surplus perspective, they see the harms that are happening in other states. So they're learning. But we're also starting to see some states introduce bills and legislation around education in the K through 12 school system. And this is fantastic. Because in the United States, we don't have national funding. We don't have funding for research education, for treatment services at the federal level. It's all done at the state level. So if we can start getting education into our school system to start educating the youth about gambling as an addiction, an addiction proper, just like substance use, alcohol and drugs, and we talk about stranger danger and decision making, let's add gambling to that conversation. I was going to ask you, Dan, about, about something because we're talking about comparisons between the United States and the UK. But what about the comparisons between, say, even the United States when, when you were younger? Because you're talking about the explosion of where you can bet now. In, in, where, where would a young Dan Trelara have placed a bet, like physically? And I'm not asking you to say anything, get yourself in trouble here. But um, so, so let's not let's not say it's you. Let's say it's, it's, it's another guy. How, Don Tamaro. Yeah, exactly. How would Don Tamaro have placed a bet when he was 21 years old? Because could you bet at tracks, or was it literally restricted to to the to New Jersey and to Nevada? Great question. When I was when I was gambling, I, and I can think back, you know, it was it was through a bookie in town. It was through a slip or a ticket. It wasn't digital. It was through a person. If I was doing my online gambling, which I did, it was online in the black market, unregulated, not a lot of controls, not a lot of restrictions. Fast forward to today, the availability and accessibility, mobile apps, 
smartphones in your pocket. Um, even in the black market, they've become more sophisticated where they're now apps being downloaded onto a phone. There's, there's ways that you can place those wagers in a secure fashion. Um, so the, the availability through mobile and internet use has drastically changed the game. In New Jersey, over 89% of all sports bets are placed online or on a mobile device. Back when I was betting in the old days, that wasn't the case. And there's something to be said for that, that delay of gratification. If we, if we look, drill down at a bit of a deeper level, the process of having to go through, pick up a phone, a pay phone, and call somebody to place a bet was so cumbersome. But it also was a slower process, so you didn't reinforce the activity or behavior. One of the issues we see now is it's that rapid reinforcement. Speed of play matters, and that's something we talk a lot about uh, with the regulators, with game designers. The faster you're reinforcing the activity, I could play blackjack every five seconds, and I could play for hours. I'm not going to overdose. If anything, I'll fall asleep after playing, but when I wake up, I'm going to keep playing. So I'll often gamble until my last dollar is gone because you're just reinforcing that activity, just like we're seeing with sports betting. You know, if I'm, I'm watching a baseball game, if I'm watching the Yankees against the Texas Rangers, there'll be 250 pitches thrown on that game. I theoretically could bet pitch by pitch of that game. And so there's endless opportunity, whereas go back 30, 40 years, limited opportunity. I'm going to ask you a fairly vague question now in hope of generating a fairly specific answer. But looking into your crystal ball, what, what does the future of gambling in the United States look like? Or is, it, is that too vast a question given that it is state by state? I think it's a big question. Um, it's a big thing. To, I think the other thing that we haven't talked about is the different in terms of differences is the age limit. You know, in, 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 in the US, you have to be 21 in most states, the vast majority of states to gamble, whereas in the UK and obviously around Europe, it's, it's, it's kind of 18. So you've got this uh, situation in the US where you can learn to drive when you're 16. You can carry a gun from 17 or 18 in some states, but you have to be 21 to gamble. So there's a kind of recognition that, you know, gambling probably has a bit of a problem around it uh, or, or could lead to a problem. But then to not have that funding involved is, 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 is something which is um, um, hard to fathom, really. But in terms of going forward, I think a lot depends on what happens now. You know, no matter how you look in the distance, we've just talked about the level of harm is probably going to be on a level that never been seen anywhere else in the world because of the lack of regulation, the lack of clear focus, the lack of uh, research, education and treatment and, and prevention services. Um, I think if they don't get hold of it now as a country, I think what will happen is that level of harm will really start to manifest itself with prison sentences, with suicides, with criminal convictions, uh, with um, relationship breakdowns. So it'll become higher and higher profile. And you only have to look at what happened in the UK. You know, the media started getting involved because all these stories started coming through. Politicians have now started getting involved as all these stories have come through. Um, and, you know, all the, all the, all the harm, you, know, you only have to pick up a newspaper every day and there's a story around gambling harm because it's been picked up. And then it tends to thought that what's happened then is that has led to much tougher regulation and a, a white paper has just come out in the uk which is basically the next level of of, of rules to bring um, gambling into the digital age it's the first one since 2005 um, and it's being looked at now for, for for a series of consultations but the same will happen in america so if they don't actually start looking at the harm now and start looking at their safer gambling procedures and policies and safeguards and funding of research and education and treatment and prevention, this harm will start to manifest itself exactly the same as it has in the UK, exactly the same as it has across Europe, but it will be on a much, much greater scale. And you are only 
a few more stories away in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times of harm of for, for, for suddenly the politicians starting to get involved. It's a different system over there, and Dan, Dan can expand on that. But then the media will start getting involved, and actually in many ways it already has. Uh, and the, the industry uh, operators will become more and more under scrutiny around their, their processes, their actions, their inducements, their advertising. And ultimately, it will go along that line of, of being really, really strongly regulated because they're not doing a good enough job in doing it themselves. So for me, what the industry looks like in the future very much depends on how seriously they take the issue right now. That's so well said. And, and speaking to the, the political point, everything you said, Paul, is, is spot on. You know, we, we kind of mirror and just follow maybe 10 years later from what's going on. And we're starting already to see the blowback in the media, to your point. We're seeing legislators starting to get more involved with introducing bills for gambling treatment diversion court. We're seeing it with some marketing restrictions that are attempting to be put in place and some other initiatives. The problem I go back to is the repeal of PASPA in 2018, which led to states' rights. While states want to be able to govern and determine for themselves, it also creates the counterpoint of harder to get things accomplished in a cohesive system. The helpline in the United States just recently became 800 Gambler, the national helpline. Easy to remember, go to. There are still states that will refuse to use the national helpline because they feel their phone numbers better. So if, an op if I'm an operator operating in, say, eight different jurisdictions, on some of my marketing uh, brochures, I need to have eight different helplines. I need to have eight different disclosures, sets of rules, it, it, it's confusing to the user. So that's one of the areas we see, if we don't get it right now, is that we're so fragmented in the United States with how we approach, because everyone has their own interests in mind for their constituents in their state. It's gonna lead to more regulation, potentially over-regulation, right? We know regulation's good and needed, but at some point, we're only a couple stories away, to Paul's point, of a massive issue. One of the things that I fear is we know gambling has some of the highest rates of suicidal ideation attempt and completion. You get a massive um, public figure who takes his or her own life due to gambling. We don't want that to happen. You know, you want to stay ahead of the problem to the best of your ability. But we're a couple scandals away or, or some, something terrible happening before people listen. And it shouldn't have to get to that point. You know, we should address this as a growing public health issue as it's supposed to be addressed. And that's why I say, you know, educating our youth at an earlier age you know, there's a phrase I've used before, and Paul's heard me say this, it's rules without relationships leads to rebellion. You know, we can put rules in place, could put a lot of rules in place, but if we don't have the relationships of why it matters, the person will rebel. And that can look like expanded gambling problems, finding ways around existing rules, people moving back to the black market if it gets too strict or regulated. We have to do a better job in America of helping our youth understand the implications and the deeper relationship and connection. That's fascinating. Um, and, and as a business, I guess, you know, you've earned some very interesting contracts in the States, you know, looking at the NCAA and the MLSPA. How do these burgeoning relationships fit into, I guess, what is a complex and, and changing landscape in terms of gambling in the United States? Yeah, we, 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 we looked at where we wanted to or where we should go and work in in the states, because because fundamentally it's a very big country and we're still a fairly small company. You know we're growing we're growing fairly fast now, but you know we can't go and change everything overnight in a country of that size where you've got no no presence back in 2019 2020. So we looked at where we're best known, where we've been successful across Europe. So it's six sectors really statistically and evidentially that have the biggest problems. So you've got sports, which is probably what we're best known for with elite sport and our programs around the world. Uh, you've got gambling in 
industry operators themselves, helping them to become more sustainable and helping them raise standards by working directly within them, which which I think is a really important thing to do. Uh, you've got financial services, criminal justice, education, and and and, and armed forces. So they're they're where you most you know you've got the biggest the biggest issues now. You know, we can't go and do all those even straight away because it's a big country. So we looked at where can we go and make most difference quickly. And they were really around sport and education and the gambling industry operators. So six of those make up around 92% of the gambling market, uh, huge organizations. So, you know, we went over, we started doing some sessions, we started having some meetings. And, and sure enough, you know, we have found an interest in these organizations. So you've got the NCAA, which is a National College Athlete Association, 1,100 colleges, half a million college athletes at any one time. Um, and we've got a, a very long-term partnership with them over the next sort of seven or eight years um, to actually do, do that education. You've then got the major league. The reason that we've really gone and started working in those areas is they radiate a message. So, you know, they're not state by state. They're global. You know, they are, you know the NFL has got, what is it, 28 or 32 teams around the United States. Most of the, the major leagues are as well. So if you can go in there and actually provide high quality programs, uh, great quality education, awareness, consultancy propositions, and, and really help them deal with this issue and the transition to this issue. That story radiates in America. You know, we always, always thought the UK was pretty sport mad, but the US kind of take it to a whole new level. And so if you can get those messages out there and then you've got a quarterback or a, you know, a, a, a famous NBA player or, or whatever talking about this. And it really radiates the message uh, more than if you just went and tried to work within a, a corporate environment somewhere or something like that. So we've, we've taken the model that did well around Europe and we've taken it to the US. And you know, now we work with four or five of the top six operators. Uh, we've got you know, five of the six major leagues, if you include the NCAA in there, and we're working directly with them. So it will just grow from there, both in terms of Epic's work, but also the message that it radiates by working with such organizations. And it's been tremendous to see the growth and just be a part of that. You know, having been with Epic, it'll be two years next month, as a matter of fact, August 9th, I believe. And seeing the growth over time, what continues to get us in front of the right decision makers and the key stakeholders is our authenticity, our vulnerability. The fact that we have folks who have been there, have lived through the experience, the concept of lived experience matters, to be able to share a personal vulnerable story helps us connect with the end user. So we're sitting across a bunch of college athletes at a campus while some of them may have never had a personal issue with gambling, there's elements of our story that will resonate. It could be a family member that they know is struggling with something. It could just be addiction in general. It could be decision-making. It can be identifying with the, with the presenter on some of the personality traits and, and how they lived their life when they were a college athlete. The feedback we consistently receive from all of our partners is, is extremely high, over 90%, 92%, 94% satisfaction rates, which is incredible. The amount of responses we get, the types of responses that we're able to analyze, and then sit back and use that qualitative data to always continually refine and improve the program. We want to be speaking the language that our, um, that our folks that are hearing it understand. You know, we want to deliver to college kids and college kid language to some extent. We'll be careful with that, but we want to use language that's going to resonate. The reason I say that is in that age demographic, the number of times I've had a college student say to me, I don't gamble. I only bet on sports. And when you just let that sit for a second, and I have to look at them and say, help me understand that a little bit. Because first of all, they're not supposed to gamble oftentimes, right? They're athletes. They're held to a different standard. But if they're admitting after, I don't gamble, I just bet on sports because it's a side job for me. It's not really gambling. It's not a slot machine. My uncle gambled. I don't do that. I'm smarter. So there's a lot of these preconceived notions and misnomers in, among American youth and emerging adults 
where they don't even see what they're doing is problematic or harmful, that's really concerning. And that's why we do the work that we do so we can educate and prevent har- gambling uh, from becoming a problem. I guess one of the things when we talk about these subjects, there are obviously going to be negatives. But in terms of looking forward, I mean, how hopeful are you that the work being done by Epic is making and will continue to make a positive difference? And you know, not just in the States, but in, in the UK and beyond. I think we're changing. I think we're changing the face of prevention and education. I, I, I truly, in my heart, believe that Epic, and the reason I joined Epic is because we do something that's truly unique and different and powerful. Because when you can share your lived experience, and it's a bit of a niche market too, to be able to find people that have lived through it that are now on one day at a time basis going on the other side because it, it's, it's an emotional journey. It's a, a recovery is a journey. It's a one day at a, a time journey. And to be able to share and convey a message that's impactful, that, that leaves a footprint, that people can then resonate and sit with, we're changing the lives of people. And, and the one challenge with prevention is that sometimes you don't know. You know, you don't know if what I said, I don't know if what I said made a difference in that individual's life today, but a year from now it may. And, and the one anecdote I'll give is when I was on a supervised release program, when I came out of prison, I was a mentor for some of the guys within our program. There was 20 of us. Uh, about two years, I was removed from the program. I graduated, finished the, I'm out of the system. I'm doing some shopping at a sports retailer. And this guy in the shoe department comes up to me and he says, you're Dan. And I said, yes, I am. How do you know me? And he says, you were my mentor when I was on the supervised release program. He says, I just graduated. I'm back with my girlfriend. We just had a baby. And now I'm in a position where I can actually buy a house. And he said, thank you. During that time, I had no idea if the words that I was saying mattered. But every so often, we're blessed with an opportunity to get some feedback. And it just motivates us to continue doing the work that we're doing. I, I, I believe we make a huge difference. Um, but one thing I would stress is we can't do it on our own. You know, collaboration is, is such an important value of ours. Uh, it's one of our five values in the business. And, you know, it's a very big nut to crack, particularly in a, in a country like the US and, and, you know, Brazil's coming up, Canada, Australia, never mind the UK and, and all around. So we can play our part. We will always... Uh, I believe, lead in the prevention space um, in through education, awareness, uh, training, uh, board level down consultancy with, 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 different, with different sectors. But we can't do it all on our own. So building relationships. So if you look at America in particular with the, the National Council uh, on Problem Gambling or you look at the state councils where, where, where they're doing work every day in those, in those states, it's really important because if we go and try and do things in silo and just do it on our own, then we'll make a difference, but we won't make as big a difference as, as is needed. So I think, um, yeah, for us, it's about building those relationships as well. And, and, you know, we're not doing it as a UK company going into the US anymore. We are, we have got a US company, Epic Risk Management US, PBC based in Delaware or, or, or constituted in Delaware. And we've got a team of 10 US people, which is growing fast. Um, and these are all people who are real experts in their areas in the US. So we can still use the UK infrastructure. We can use the learnings from the UK and Europe. But actually, we need to make it more and more bespoke to the US market because it is a very different market. Bit of a philosophical one to end on. And I'm guessing that, you know, you probably would rather not have your individual stories to tell. I remember talking to Scott Davis and he said the same thing. I don't want this story. I don't want it to be my story. I wish I'd been a different person. But given that it is, from when you had your last bet to now, I mean, how proud are you of that journey that you've, you've taken as individuals and, and where you've ended in terms of the difference that, that you're making as, as just discussed? 
I would say that that's that's a very big philosophical question. Um, you know, we we can't be the type of provider, the type of partner with others, uh, the collaborative men, having the collaborative mentality without the journey that we've taken. You know, all of those steps has led us to today. You know, being in this moment right now, being present to deliver a podcast. Um, certainly, I can look backwards and I can say, yes, I wish I didn't do this. I, but there's also a, a purpose and a plan, and there's a reason for for what we're going through. And if that can help shed a light to somebody else, or be a partner, or collaborate with another agency or in, uh, or an industry, at a time when this is a growing harm, you know, we've lived through it, we've seen it, we understand the intricate details as a lived experience individual of what it means, of how we process gambling. You know, a person without a gambling problem won't process it the same way, so they won't always understand. So any facet that we can help educate and partner with somebody else is just something that's that's makes the job so rewarding. Uh, one thing I've always thought about is that light can't shine through a perfect vase. Sometimes the vase will have to have a crack or two. When you put a light in there, the light shines out of it and reaches other people. And so the, I appreciate the battle scars. Uh, we try to do a good job of of communicating them to others and sharing what we've learned in hopes of trying to prevent problems or educate others. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time looking backwards. You know, I, I, I did things happened how they happened. I had my role in that continue moving forward, but what's the next right solution and how can I now play my part to be a help or a guiding light for someone else? Yeah. November the 27th, 2011 was the last place about two, 2,400 pound on a, uh, Ruby, Ruby Walsh ridden Paul Nichols horse. Uh, in the UK and it, and, it, and it lost it fell at the, the third fence and I didn't know at the time that that would be my last bet you know I didn't know you know it wasn't like is, is if, if this loses it's finished but a series of events afterwards made made, made it my, my, my last bet, bet and you know it wasn't long afterwards but you had to make that decision in terms of do you go out there and get a job or do you go out there and, and change the way that gambling is looked at and, and how gambling harm is prevented so people don't walk in the, the steps that we do. Um, you know, and I think the work that we've done since, and it, you know, the, it's built from being just me to now, as I said, 50 people of 24 of which are, are, are lived experience. You know, I'm proud of each and every one of them every day because it is not an easy thing to do. You are telling the world like we are now that actually it all went pretty pear-shaped for me. You know, I almost wasn't here. Um, you know, my career was over, my family were hurt and, and, and everything else. And everyone's got their own sort of um, highlights or lowlights of the story, however you want to do it. So really, really proud that we go out there and provide that perspective um, and use those experiences to help prevent that happening to other people. And I can't really think there's anything more rewarding you could do than that. So, you know, I'm a little bit different to Dan. You know, you very much live 90% or 95% of your life looking through the windscreen. But I think every now and again, there's no harm in looking through the rearview mirror and just reminding yourself what you went through, um, you know, how you came out the other side of it, what your triggers were um, and, and, and everything else. And, you know, um, for me, I'm 12 years without a bet come November this year, you know, so it feels like it's a little, little, little bit ago. But, you know, I always keep it as a sort of thorn in my side. And I think that also helps with the work we do with Epic in trying to prevent it happening with other people. Well, thanks so much, guys. That's all we've got time for. Dan's got to catch a train and then a plane. So, um, but thank you so much, Paul Buck and Dan Trelaro, for your time. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.